HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. And welcome to Greenhorns Radio. This is Severin. I'm your host, coming to you live from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where we're on the road shooting for the Greenhorns. And I'm joined today on our show by wonderful allies. Um, one of them is in Pennsylvania as well. That's John Good of Quiet Co. Farm. And Ethan Rowland, who is coming to us live from Tennessee. Are you all there? Yeah. Howdy, Severin. Howdy. So it's beautiful weather. It's finally drying out a little bit here. Um, everything is green, green, green. And what we're talking about today on the show is compost, carbon, and the future of farming. So maybe we can start with uh, John, who can introduce himself, and then, and then Ethan will have you introduce yourself. Okay. My name's John Good, and my wife and I own and operate a Quiet Creek Farm. We're an eight-acre vegetable uh, community-supported operation. Uh, we operate at the Rodale Institute in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, and we've been farming now, um, doing vegetables for about ten years. Great, and uh, my name is Ethan Rowland. I run Appleseed Permaculture, and I'm a primary organizer of the Carbon Farming Course uh, in Tennessee this fall. I live in the Hudson River Valley of New York but I've traveled all over the world to Southeast Asia, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and uh, the evidence of uh, changing climate, or really a, a climate in chaos, is everywhere. So I'm really excited to talk with you all about uh, carbon and carbon farming today. Um, so, so, John, maybe you could go into a little bit from your perspective what's been going on on, in, on your farm and kind of how does, compost and carbon fixing come into your life? And then, even maybe you can respond with where, um, where that information is coming from, um, like where the research stands on carbon farming and where um, some of the visionaries of today think it may go in the future. Great. Yeah. At our farm, um, we rely on compost as basically our primary nutrient source. Um, 
the Rodale Institute makes large amounts of compost for their 330-acre experimental farm, and we use that on our eight acres every fall. And um, we're kind of different, I think, maybe than your typical operation, or the way most people think of using uh, compost, is that we don't put it on directly prior to our vegetable crops. We compost our, our fields in the fall when they're, being, when they're going fallow and then grow a cover crop on that fallow land using, using the compost as a fertilizer for the cover crop, which will get plowed under the following, uh, following season and then in turn be food for our crops. And um, the basic way, you know, I'm, I'm, I've read the soil science, but I'm a farmer and not a soil scientist. So my understanding of compost is maybe a little bit more basic, but the way I look at it, as um, our soil is basically like a, like a giant digestive system or, or organism that's hungry for organic matter. And we feed that in the form of compost, um, which in our case is usually a mix of um, leaves and, and animal manures. And we use that to feed the microorganisms and beneficial fungi and bacteria that happen to live in our soil. And we use compost as sort of an inoculant of those good living organisms which will then will create a healthy soil ecosystem, which will then feed our plants and in turn feed and feed us. And that's basically how we look at view compost and its use on our farm. And the principle well, that you are employing by putting the compost for the cover crop, is that a weed control um, principle or where, where does that come from? It's, it's primarily comes from our philosophy is looking at the soil as an, as an entire ecosystem. What we're trying to use, the, we're using compost as not so much a fertilizer directly for our crop, but we're using it to fertilize the cover crop because we believe with the cover crop, um, there's a lot more um, root matter going on, a lot more root growth happening. And um, the cover crop then is, in a sense, creating like an entire soil food web where when you put it on directly before a crop that you're going to harvest, you're kind of... Um, you're using it very short term. You're putting that compost on, then the crop you're growing is taking it right out of the ground, and then when you harvest that crop, you're basically taking the compost off the ground again, you know, the nutrients that it contributed to the system. So by, by putting so it on the So taking a longer-term view of um, the soil food web, seems like that meshes in quite nicely with what you have to say, Ethan. Tell us about the soil yeah. food web, if you would. Yeah, it's really exciting, John, to hear you uh, talking about the practices on your farm because this is exactly the sort of uh, best practices of ecological agriculture that the carbon farming course hopes to teach uh, farmers and designers uh, all around the world. Um, because, you know, we're really in this time right now of, of global climate chaos. Uh, and, and unfortunately, the climate chaos isn't the only thing we're dealing with. We've got water shortages, you know, biodevastation. Two-thirds of all species on the planet are threatened with extinction. And for some reason, we humans seem to think we're not one of those that will go extinct. Um, and, you know, from my travels and even from what I've seen here in the Northeast with record rainfalls in June, the, the climate is really, is really disrupted. And so using some of the practices uh, like composting, building the soil food web, um, using the, the key lime plow, these are practices that can not only enhance the fertility of that ecosystem of the soil that John was talking about, but at the same time, it's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and holding it in the soil. So with uh, good ecological growing practices, we can also do our part to take carbon out of the atmosphere and do our bit to fight against global climate chaos. So, so I've, yes, I've been experiencing this global climate chaos. Um, personally, we just lost all our tomatoes to blight 
Um, so far, the tomatillos are unscathed, but um, everybody that I talk to is just crying their eyes out about their tomato crop. And um, <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit inconsolable, but I, I realize that the work that we're doing individually and collectively on our farms, um, using these ecological practices to fix nitrogen into our farms, does contribute to the larger narrative about how we're going to reclaim climate stability. But explain, please, um, Ethan and, and John, be ha happy to jump in. How does it work? How does the carbon get fixed? What is the soil food web? Okay, so carbon, carbon, the basic action of putting carbon into the soil is through these incredible translators called plants. Uh, plants take uh, the energy of the sun and use it to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, split the carbon dioxide up, take the carbon to grow itself, to grow its green matter, and also to grow its roots, and then it releases oxygen back out into the atmosphere. So simply the growing of plants, grasses, trees, crops, whatever we're doing, their basic action is to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, out of the air, and put it into their bodies and into their roots, and that's where we feed the soil food web because um, the, the plant roots release sugars from, from their roots into the surrounding soil, and that's where that great beneficial bacteria and fungi and cilia and protozoa and nematodes and the whole soil food web feeds off the sugars that the plants are putting into the ground. Amazing. So, so we always were taught um, that there's a jungle beneath our feet in that soil food web, and there's incredibly complex um, and carnivory and drama and all sorts of different um, kinds of animals and creatures that are milling around. But what is the scale of, like, per acre? Give us, if you could, a little bit of numbers. Like, I'm looking out at an acre of corn here. How much, how much, how much carbon is being fixed per year per acre? Well, what we can do, and, and one of the ways we can think about uh, how much carbon is being fixed through uh, some figures we already understand is we can look at soil organic matter. Um, so just when you do a basic soil test, one of the things they look for is how much organic matter, uh, in other words, carbon, is there in the soil. And if we were to increase the soil organic matter by 1%, just 1%, that would sequester 63 tons of carbon into that acre of soil, right? And that 63 tons, that's almost, that's close to two and a half times as much as the average American releases, 23 tons of carbon dioxide a year. We could be fixing on one acre of soil by simply adding 1% soil organic matter. So, so wow, that's a, a very significant um, amount per acre. The question becomes, how would we on a practical level um, make that much compost? John, maybe you can discuss how Rodale Institute uses the surrounding dairy infrastructures to, to manufacture, like describe their um, composting facility. And then maybe both of you can talk about how municipalities or institutions of other kinds could be contributors and protagonists in this great composting project that we seem, seems like we should really be embarking upon. John? Mm. Sure. At, at, um at Rodale, the way their composting operation works, actually, interestingly enough, is um, one of the primary ingredients is leaves from the surrounding municipalities in this area. Uh, we have a, in the Lehigh Valley area of southeastern Pennsylvania, most of the municipalities have a leaf collection every fall where everybody rakes their leaves into the street and the municipalities uh, collect them. Most of those will end up 
going to either the county compost facility, and, and gener- generally at the county compost facility there's so much compost being made that they don't use all of it. Some of that actually ends up going to the landfill. So what we do, what the Rodale Institute does, is they take some of those leaves here and then combine them with some animal manure from some of the local farms and make a compost out of that, thereby taking a waste product and making a fertilizer that we then can use in our fields. And um, as was mentioned, we, we use that, the, the compost on our fields primarily for the purpose of raising our, our organic matter. Um, when I look at a soil test, those numbers that we were just talking about are um, the most important, important measure to me of how much life is in my soil and thereby how healthy it is and how well my crops will grow. Are you, are you able to discuss this um, on the radio, the exact figure of your soil organic matter? Our soil organic matter in our fields ranges between 4 and 6%. Um, which we consider good num- good numbers for farm-scale organic matter. And, and that's a result of also the Rodale Institute has been managing these fields organically and giving them compost and, regu- and cover crops treatments for 30 years. Mm. Do you happen to know what the national average is? I don't know the national average offhand. I know that most of the farmers in my area would kill to see 3% organic matter in their soils. Wow. Yeah, it's it's the it's I don't know the the countrywide average, but I do know that in the Northeast, you know, we have this ability to put carbon in the soil relatively quickly. But really, a lot of carbon farming, you know, while it can be applied in the Northeast, is also really important elsewhere in the world, um, where the soil organic matter is much lower. It's at you know one percent or two percent in some of the more arid and even subtropical and tropical areas, there's really very little carbon in the soil. And just like John said, it's such an important number, such an important indicator of the, the soil food web. So I think that these, these practices that we're looking at, um, composting and food forestry and putting more trees in the ground and, and rotational grazing, I think these can help not just uh, in the northeast, um, but also in the, in the tropics, in the subtropics, like the largest tomato grower in South Africa, ZZ2, ZZ2, they're using uh, the soil food web and making massive amounts of compost every, every year in order to do exactly this, raise that soil organic matter. So we're going to raise the soil organic matter. We're going to raise the roof. We're going to quickly go to break um, for some music. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio. Thank you for joining us, um, and we'll have a little music break now, please. with Greenhorns Radio, Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers. We're coming to you live today from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I'm joined in the Ethernet Ether world by um, John Good of Quiet Co. Farm. 
and Ethan Rowland of Appleseed Permaculture. We are talking about carbon and carbon fixing, carbon farming, um, carbon futures, and um, the importance of that critical um, underlying nutrition to our plans for an edible future. Um, one thing I thought would be maybe useful to talk about with you both is how um, how this carbon farming and, or carbon-friendly farming is going to work out in places um, that don't have the benefit of a strong dairy community um, or, you know, an intact agricultural um, matrix around them. So I'm thinking now pretty specifically about my friend Christy Raymond, uh, who is farming in a suburb of Redsom, Massachusetts, um, and her her struggles to get uh, adequate composting materials in the suburban area when most of the biomass that's being generated around her is uh, long clippings um, and, and three-leaf litter from the suburban environment, um, which she f is worried that it will contain a lot of, um, of sprays. Could you maybe address that concern? Even? Uh, I'm, I'm not concerned at all about uh, most sprays that are in compost because composting is really modern-day alchemy. Uh, and what you put into the compost pile, the, the power of decomposition, that thermophilic, that hot bacteria and fungus that are working to transform materials into compost, really do an excellent job of taking care of any contaminants um, in the starting materials. Even heavy metals can be bound up and chelated uh, in a good compost pile and, and then won't be bioavailable to plants. So my basic rule with compost, uh, which is one of, the, one of these tools of carbon farming, uh, is if it has lived, it can live again. And I would just add in that, you know, any, if you are in a situation where you're limited with your sources to make compost, just as equally important and, and probably also just as beneficial in terms of fixing carbon is cover cropping. Um, cover mm. cropping is just growing uh, grains and legumes on your fields to fix nitrogen and carbon into your soil and increase the organic matter. And really it's um, a system that is, you know, identical to the way you would do it in nature. So what you're trying to do is, is sort of in brief periods on your farm when you, or your garden when you have a period where an area is fallow, recreating that natural ecosystem that we were talking about earlier and allowing a grass and the and um, uh, legume to grow on that on that crop on that ground, and then when you till it under to produce later on, you'll get the benefit of that decomposing in your soil and being the, basically on-site compost. Absolutely, and to take that even a step further in the suburban environment, um, we can look to mimic nature as it goes further along succession, and we can be planting food forests. And we can, we can look to do a combination of highly productive annual crops and then also perennial crops, trees and berries and bushes and vines and tubers that are really completely perennial in nature. So, in fact, we can have a combination of systems, some of which we're never tilling the soil, um, and we're building organic matter on the top. We're basically doing composting on its own as we plant a food forest, which is basically just like a, a normal forest in the Northeast, except every plant has fruits and nuts and berries and leaves that you can eat just kind of growing right on it. And uh, so we can shift towards this perennial tree crop and food production alongside our mosaic of uh, important annual vegetable production. Yeah, it seems like the suburbs are perfect for food forests. Um, it probably will take a, a, some kind of economic or political incentive to get 
all these folks out here in the agricultural belts of America to, you know, reinstall hedgerows and buffers and um, perennial barriers um, around their fields. But it does sound like those, those even just the, the slivers of kind of remnant um, ecology that exists in hedgerows and verges do have significant carbon benefits as well as pollinator benefits. So um, my question becomes, do you think it would be a viable plan for Uncle Sam to demand um, or, or, frankly, to pay um, young and old farmers around this country to increase their soil organic matter? Is that um, a politically viable um, way forward out of this subsidy um, puddle that we're in right now? Uh, what do you think, John? <laughs> it's a very interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> I'm always a little leery of, of um, Uncle Sam's ability to, to affect change for the positive, but I hope that, that it could happen. Um, you know, uh, we have, I think, you know, organic and sustainable farmers and permaculturists have been making uh, the right decisions in terms of, of sequestering carbon and building soil organic matter all around, all, all along, um, with no help from the government, whereas opposed to um, the more in, uh, intensive agribusiness model has gotten lots of help. So in that sense, I think it, it would be nice maybe to see the dollars um, distributed a little bit more equitably and rewarding um, okay. those of us who, who practice um, uh, this sort of carbon sequestration or build, building soil organic matter or sustainable farming. And I, I think we're moving that way. I'm hopeful. But I also hope that, um, that we don't need the government to spur us along and that um, people of their own accord, and I'm hoping that we're kind of seeing this now, more and more are going to make the right decisions with their land and move into sustainable farming, one, because it makes sense, and two, because it makes sense to the, the consumers and eaters out there, and that's what they want to see. Yeah, and I think yeah. I, I'm, uh, I would support Uncle Sam giving money to carbon farmers, but <clears throat> I'm also really excited uh, about the relocalization of our agricultural systems, and one of the huge proponents of that, Joel Salton, uh, who's just been featured in Food, Inc., and has written so many books that I'm sure you all have read, He's uh, going to be doing a day at our carbon farming course focusing exactly on relocalization and revitalizing our local economies and kind of stepping into our local political systems in order to uh, create support for these sustainable agriculture and carbon farming. And I think, in my mind, that's a really strong leverage point. You know, we can work at the national and even at the regional and state levels um, on carbon farming policy, but I think we'll have the most traction in our local communities with the people that we can know and talk to and lobby on the street to really get support for these localized agriculture and carbon sequestering systems. Yeah, so a more relationship-based political, um, political change aspirations, like people that you could conceivably feed, uh, the kinds of people that you could conceivably uh, induce to either form or they're either found or reformulate institutions um, of governance in, uh, in that are that are of net positive um, impact to our agricultural relocalization efforts. Now, um, say that the person who's listening here today, and, and there are actually quite a few people listening here today, was interested to go and learn the skills um, the skill sets needed to become um, proficient farmers of, com of carbon and compost um, producers. Where, apart from this carbon farming course, would you suggest that they start that journey? Let's start with John. Yeah, um, the best place is to start looking at um, organic or sustainable farms 
um, that offer internships or employment opportunities. Um, and there's several places on the internet where you can do searches by area or by zip code and find um, you know, farmers in your area who might be um, operating on, operating with sustainable practices. And then most of them will offer full season or part season internships and are willing to work with people to um, teach you the craft of farming. And a lot of that is the uh, you know day to day sort of hard work and you know, what some people might consider drudgery of, of farming, but then there's also the theoretical aspect of it, too, that comes along with that. And um, that's, I know, whenever someone asks me how to, how to learn how to do this sort of thing, I say, find out, you know, who's in your area, find out who's doing it the best, and go work for them, because there's no better way to learn than by doing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that, that uh, getting your hands in the soil Putting crops in the ground, planting trees is a is a great way to start. Um, and another another kind of route to learn some of the theory side of things. You know, this carbon farming course is really a collection of a bunch of different courses all together. And any one of those um, would be a great place to start. And you can find them in different organizations all over the country and the world. Uh, holistic management, holistic resource management, which focuses on goal setting and planning, and really on uh, rotational grazing. Those are great workshops. Key line design is a broad acre permaculture strategy, so a key line design or a permaculture course anywhere in the world, um, and then especially uh, food forestry or edible forest gardening, and then more and more workshops on this in local areas across the country. And if you can ever catch Elaine Ingham and the Soil Food Web, she's created the Soil Food Web internationally and do one of her courses, that's really the serious training to get you to understand that ecosystem of the soil that John was talking about. Um, so any of these courses would be a great place to start. And will you give us the web address, please, for that carbon farming course, which serves as kind of a portal to that um, phalanx of um, wonderful resource, resource centers? These people, by the way, have been studying this stuff for 30 and 40 years. They are incredibly dedicated. Um, protagonists of carbon fixation, and um, I think that we would all do well to engage our minds and our um, our practice in this in this project. Tell us the website, please. Um, so the main one would be the blog carbonfarmingcourse.blogspot.com. You can also follow us on Twitter uh, at carbon farming, um, and either of those will get you to the the main course page, uh, which is at Living Mandala and the Carbon Farming Course. But the blog, carbonfarmingcourse.blogspot.com, has lots of information and articles and all the radio shows that Joel Fountain and our different trainers are doing. Um, so check out there for more information. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much for joining us today talking about compost. Um, remember, you know, you're never too young a farmer to start composting. If you're a mom and you're listening and you've got kids who can even wiggle their fingers a little, it's never too soon to start with worms, and it's never too late, uh, even if you're out there farming conventional cotton, uh, GMO, Roundup Ready cotton in the south. Um, there are principles that are described by the Red Hill Institute which will apply to your farm system um, to enhance your carbon scenario there and uh, your fertility in the future. So I would love to thank you guys for joining us today. And um, please do check out their work and, and continue to stay up with the Greenhorns. We are www.thegreenhorns.net. Our blog is thegreenhorns.wordpress.com. 
We have many events upcoming. Um, August 29th is our Watermelon Moonshine Campout um, Festival Work Party um, Anarchist Marching Band situation on the farm. We're having the grill out and great times to be had. We'll be doing an event in September, September 12th at Monticello, which is Thomas Jefferson's farm in, um, on the 12th. It's at the Southern Exposure Seed Festival. Uh, we'll, doing, we'll be doing a booth and then after-party mixer for young farmers. And then in October, we're doing a, a bike tour out in Missouri, um, visiting a few farms, um, doing a bonfire, and then a booth at Farm Aid. So lots going on, lots to plug into, many, many job opportunities and land opportunities continually burbling up to the surface of our consciousness and then burbling onto our blog. So stay in touch and keep up the good work. Thank you, boys. Thank, thank you, you. Severin. Thank you, John. Take care. Tag on it, drifting apart like a plate tectonic. It don't matter to me. 